So I'm Writing a Novel is the show where you join me, Oliver Brackenbury, on the journey of writing my next novel, from first ideas all the way to publication and promotion. In this one-man reality show, I'll share with you my ever-evolving thoughts and feelings on how I write, being a writer, and everything that entails at each stage of the process. I'll also answer listener questions and sometimes interview special guests. If you're the kind of person who likes to learn how things are made and get to know the people making them, then this is the show for you. Today I'll be speaking with an author whose work was brought to my attention by the always marvelous Hoy of the Appendix N Book Club podcast. His name is Daryl R.A. Quioga, author of, among other works, Swords of the Four Winds, 11 tales of ferocious swords and sorcery in the ancient East. These stories are distributed across four original characters of Daryl's, and in the foreword he suggests that perhaps you could think of this as a subgenre called Sword and Silk, somewhat akin to the Sword and Soul subgenre of Sword and Sorcery created by Charles Saunders. As well as being a writer, Daryl is a freelance photographer and history buff. But you know what? Why don't I let him tell you who he is and talk about his works, which I greatly enjoyed. Oh, I suppose one last thing I'll mention is that Daryl lives in Davao City in the Philippines, while I continue to live in Toronto, Canada, which means there was quite the time difference and the following interview was recorded at 7am my time, 8pm his time. I hope I'm not too dozy. Let's find out. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, here we are with Daryl. Hi, Daryl. Hey. <laughs> Glad to have you here, man. Uh, hey, you... good morning. Is... <laughs> Thanks for waking up early. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord, yes, but that's okay. It's worth it. Um, could you please, to begin with here, could you please share with us your fiction writing origin story? Like, what were your earliest efforts? Okay. Uh, you know, I was really inspired by Robert E. Howard and uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs, Lee Brackett. Then later on, I discovered Moorcock and Wagner. And, but before that, I guess the ground in my mind had already been prepared because I had been able to read, well, abridged versions of uh, Homer's, uh, the Odyssey, the Iliad, uh, the history of Herodotus. So I was very much into liking historically based fiction about warriors. And so when Perfect I discovered Howard, that blew my mind. <laughs> <laughs> that, that blew my mind because he, here's uh, stuff grounded in that historical vein, but with dark fantasy, you know, sorcery, demons, giants. Like, whoa, this is fun. I want to do this. <laughs> <laughs> do you remember the first story you tried to write? What, what, what it about? Oh, gosh. Uh, no, I can't really remember the first one anymore. But I do remember in my teens, I was doing some stories set in India because I had lived in India at that time. Mm. So we got to explore some Rajput uh palaces and forts and ruins and so that really inspired me that does go away to explaining the elephants that show up quite a bit in one of the early orhan stories <laughs> oh yes yes in fact i have a thing for war elephants uh because in western accounts of course what comes to the fore are the weaknesses of war elephants huh? because mm. war elephants always appear in western history when they're encountered by you know the greatest generals alexander caesar okay <laughs> So, of course, you know, the guys with the elephants lost. <laughs> but the war elephant has been in use for thousands of years, so there must have been some good in it, right? There it must have been some uh, beneficial in some way. So I explore that in some of my stories. Like they're living battering rams in, uh, you know, a black titan of Gai Khan. Yeah, exactly. And the, the armor and the techniques of fighting with them and fighting against them that you got into, I found really interesting. You know, I've read Roman history about them fighting Hannibal and his elephants and that kind of thing, but 
I felt like I, I learned quite a bit from your stories just there. Oh, thanks. It was also really fun to research that. <laughs> All right, great. Uh, could you please share with us your sword and sorcery origin story? What sucked you into that kind of storytelling? Well, uh, as usual, it's uh, Robert E. Howard's fault. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Although, to tell the truth, uh, my first uh, experience of Conan was really the Bjorn Nyberg and Elsprag de Camp uh, edits of the stories. Right, the Ace and Lancer stuff, yeah. Yes, yes. So that, uh, that was the very first. And then I got the chance to read uh, Robert E. Howard's own uh, stories, the ones he published in his lifetime. But prior to that, I guess the ground had already pre- been prepared. My brain had already been prepared uh, because I got to read uh, abridged versions of the Odyssey, the Iliad, the history of Herodotus. Uh, that influenced me a lot. And so mm-hmm. when I read Howard, it's like, oh, wow, here are stories that are set in a very historical feeling milieu, but they're sorcery. So like, okay, that blew my mind. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, you know, I've often heard uh, sword and sorcery described not as a subgenre of fantasy, but as, as a historical fiction with a wizard, you know, with a twist kind of thing. And so that makes a lot of sense. I really have to agree with you in that one. For me, swords and sorcery become so much uh, weightier when you have a strong historical parallel that it's based on, mm-hmm. and you try to use uh, real, you know, historical uh, legendary to inform the fantasy aspect of it. Mm, yeah, like it kind of grounds and enriches it, I find. It's one of the reasons I'm really drawn to it myself. Yeah, so <laughs> sorry about uh, to say this, but you know, uh, there's been a wave of uh, fiction based on some fantasy role-playing games, and mm-hmm. I didn't find that as grounded as the older stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm going to have to read some Dragonlance novels and that kind of thing at some point, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I, I must admit, yeah, they kind of glanced off me as I was growing up. Same here. Same here. I have to admit. <laughs> yeah, no shame to those who enjoy it, but yeah, not not my not my jam or yours. It sounds like. So, in your sword and sorcery writing, or your writing in general, I'm curious what themes or arguments, you know, the big ideas, do you find yourself drawn to again and again? What are what are the things you keep finding yourself wanting to say? Well, I've always been very interested in military history, in warfare, so I have a thing for wanting to include battles. Mm-hmm. So you will notice that quite a few of my stories in Swords of the Four Winds had pretty large-scale battles. So those were really fun to write for me. Um, I'm fascinated by the power struggles mm-hmm. between uh, you know uh, le- famous leaders of the past. Uh, I also grew up reading biographies of uh, Alexander, Hannibal, Genghis Khan. I loved Harold Lamb's uh, Genghis Khan and the uh, Babur books. I was I was wondering if you'd read, uh, you know, Clit the Cossack and the, those other books of his. I yeah. have read Clit, but I actually got to read the Clit uh, stories much, much later. Oh, okay. I read the very, very first Lamb book I read was actually Babur, hmm. which was fun because I found it in a Delhi bookshop. <laughs> I lived in India for a while. Oh, cool. So, yeah, that was the perfect place to read it. <laughs> That's really cool. You know, in the shadow of the Red Fort. <laughs> 
Oh man, I've, I've, that's on my to be read list. I've, I've just sort of, uh, I'm, a, I'm a lamb baby, a baby lamb. Uh, <laughs> I re- read uh, quite a decent amount at this point of uh, Khalid the Cossack. Um, and I definitely need to move on, I think, to some of his other stuff as much as I'm enjoying the Cossack. But yeah, I was thinking about him more than once uh, while I was reading your, your work. Uh, so that's really cool. Oh, thanks. That, that's yeah. uh, very good news for me <laughs> because lamb's one of my idols. Yeah, no, there are worse people to be compared to than like the guy who Howard names as possibly his biggest influence. Yeah, yeah, and I can see why, yeah. yeah. So actually bringing it back to the history side of things, you know, you mentioned battles and, and a few, you know, uh, Alexander and stuff like that. Are there any, you know, like one of the one of the things that was enjoyable about reading Swords of the Four Winds was to read some sort of sorcery with its roots in something other than like Western culture. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious, are there maybe some influences from uh, Asian myths, legends, and history uh, in your work? Very like I was definitely. able to spot- Yep, yep. Oh, sorry, sorry, please go on. No, that's okay. I just was saying, like, I mean, I, I definitely spotted, I th- well, I think, I mean, you tell me, uh, in one story, uh, perhaps a shout out to the Terracotta Army, but I feel like I must have been missing some others. I've definitely... Well, yeah. guilty as charged. That was definitely the Terracotta Army there. Um, Yes, I tend to draw a lot on uh, historical inspirations. Orhan Timur is based on uh, Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan had a blood brother, a sworn blood brother, or Anda, as the Mongols call it, named Jamuga, who turned into his greatest rival. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, so Genghis defeated Jamuga. But in my mind, I was thinking, what if Jamuga had defeated Genghis? What would have happened? Well, Genghis Khan would never have given up trying to get his throne back, right? So that's Orhan. Okay. Okay, so that Black Titan of Gaikand, uh, also in Swords of the Four Winds, that was inspired by a historical uh, event, the Jauhar of Chitorgar, where the Rajput warriors in Chitor, during a hopeless siege, they all charged out without armor so that they would be guaranteed to die in battle while their women burned themselves. Wow. So it was, it was just like Masada. So mm. yeah, you know, if another historical book, in fact, that I would recommend if you are looking for inspirations uh, in Asian history, is uh, Todd's uh, Annals and Antiquities of uh, Rajasthan. Very good inspiration. There's a lot of stuff there. Thank you. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. Um, <laughs> was there is there any kind of like myth, legend, or piece of history that you would particularly like to tackle that's kind of on your list? I'm researching for more material. I would like to actually look back more on the Southeast Asian history. And uh, mm-hmm. well, I mean, th- that's where I am from. I- I'm a Filipino. Mm-hmm. So yeah, more of that, uh, more stories based on the pre-colonial Philippines, more stories based on the Indianized kingdoms of uh, Funan, Champa, Cambodia, so things like that. However, the funny thing is, jungles make me itchy, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I don't think you're alone in that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, like, I've been to one, uh, more than one, and yeah, they make me itchy. I don't like mud, I don't like rain, landscapes like... Uh, you know, the deserts and the Himalayas are actually more inspiring, you know, so it's funny. <laughs> oh, cool. Have you ever had a chance to visit like a, a major desert or the Himalayas? Well, the Thar Desert in Rajasthan, uh, like I said, I lived in India for a while mm-hmm. and I got to go hiking in Kashmir. So, yeah, you see sunrise over the Himalayas once and you'll never forget it. That's amazing. Oh, awesome, dude. Like I. One thing I sometimes worry about when I'm writing my own stuff is that I have seen a lot of North America and a bit of Europe, and that's about it. 
And I spend most of my time deep in the center of a major North American city. And so most mm-hmm. of my like day-to-day nature is like the dog park. And I don't know if Conan ever had any great adventures in a dog park. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'd read that one, but yeah. So, I mean, that's very cool that you've had these great life experiences to feed into your writing. I think that's a really great asset. And that, and I love the sea. Uh, I'm an avid snorkeler. And uh, when I can afford to, I, I go scuba diving. But I'm also very attracted to sea stories, pirate stories. But I want to make them Asian pirate stories. I have to admit, my uh, Malay ancestors did have a history of piracy. <laughs> oh, yeah? Well, yes. Basically, uh, the tribes were raiding each other back and forth. So, yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. And I, I'm sure that's also a great asset to draw from uh, in terms of the history. And actually, speaking of history, a while back, I got a listener question that I'd be interested to hear your answer to. Mm. The listener was asking, you know, they were kind of wondering, like, how close to modern times a sword and sorcery story can take place and still feel like sword and sorcery. To that end, I was a little surprised, pleasantly, but still, when cannons showed up in one of your Pandora the Pirate Prince stories within Swords of the Four Winds. And it made me curious, like, how do, how do you feel? Do you think when gunpowder shows up, that's a, you know, I mean, you put it in one of your stories, so I guess you're, you're okay with it to a degree. But like, where for you is kind of the line of like moving towards more modern kind of settings, and then it sort of feels like something else? Okay, for me, uh, sword and sorcery is more an attitude. It's a kind of action your characters get into. It's uh, how the char- characters speak and act. Of course, there's got to be that dark fantasy element. And of course, the swords. But that, that for me, does not preclude firearms. So I would be happy to set a story in the 16th century, 17th century, maybe not farther than that. Because once you get into the realm of the swashbuckler, then, you know, things change. It, I tried. I, I wrote a story once that I can't find the draft of. Oh, no. I was inspired by uh, Arturo Perez Revertis' uh, books. And I wrote a swashbuckler set in the 80 Years' War. Mm-hmm. That was a sword and sorcery story. And I think it came off as sword and sorcery, but uh, like I said, I'm missing the draft. I can't find it anymore. <laughs> Darn. Oh, no. Well, I hope you find it uh, well intact at some point, because that sounds interesting. And, you know, coming back to um, DeCamp and, and Carter and the Lancer, uh, Conan stuff, some of their original pastiches, like they would often kind of nudge things up. So it seemed as if Conan was charging around in that more modern era of piracy. You know, guns wouldn't show up, but everything else, like the fashion and so on. And so, yeah, some people complain about that. Some people are fine with it. I guess it's all a matter of personal taste, but I like your answer. I I, I like the feeling of it being an attitude. And actually, you know what? Uh, Before I get to my next sort of planned question, I'd love to hear what you think is the attitude of a sword and sorcery story. Well, sword and sorcery for me is heroic fiction with a dash of horror. Mm. So it's again, uh, very influenced by Howard. So it's man, naked man, pitted against dark forces that he can never control. Okay. So, you know, when you've got that attitude of, I can't fight this, I can't defeat this, but I'm going to try anyway, that's a sword and sorcery story for me. I like that, yeah. Certainly one thing I've really liked uh, about sword and sorcery is it, it can feel kind of empowering in a way, right? You have these characters who are generally speaking, intimidated by the bizarre forces they find themselves uh, pitted against when, you know, you get into the the sorcery half of the equation, but they don't give up, you know, maybe they run away for a second to catch their wits and come back again, maybe, you know, like a liver story. But yeah, yeah, there's this feeling of, you know, this is overwhelming and I don't fully understand it, but I'm going to give it my best. 
that I find yeah, very... Yeah, that, that for me is know. the value of a sword and sorcery story. No, I like it. Great answer, man. Uh, and actually, uh, it, my next question does sort of tie into this in a sense. In The Lord of the Brass Host, one of your stories in this book, mm -hmm. Orhan the Snow Leopard says, I don't trust sorcery. Magic's a stinging viper. Seize the hand and you're poisoned by the tail. Seize the tail and you're poisoned by the fangs. How do you feel? I guess we got a bit of it now, but I'd love to hear some more. How do you feel about sorcery and fiction? Like, do you have a preference for how it's portrayed? Are magic systems something that turn you off or that you're into? You know, how, how do you feel about that? Well, uh, yeah, I've uh, kind of gotten there already, um, given the answer to that already. But yeah, to elaborate on that, yes, I believe sword and sorcery sorcery should be dark. It should be menacing. It should be mysterious. But it should also, um, how should I say? It should feel mythical. It should resonate with the. It should resonate with your childhood fears. Okay, and it should also resonate with the childhood, with the fairy stories, fairy tales that you you know that you read or heard in your childhood. So you got uh, me personally. I go for things like magical thinking, uh, using the laws of similar similarity and contagion. So stuff like that. And always looking back at the uh, mythological inspirations. So like, uh, yeah, uh, for example, the in uh, my story of uh, Pandara, in the service of the Serpent King, the seed of that was an actual story that I got to hear while uh, we were in Cambodia of how uh, the Cambodian kings had a tradition of going to one of these temple towers and there they would meet a Naga princess in the middle of the night and sleep with her. And that was what kept the kingdom together. If the king couldn't mm -hmm. make it, the kingdom would weaken, might even fall. So that was like, whoa, this is strong material. What if we have the king turn against the goddess? And that mm -hmm. was the story that resulted. Okay, cool. And I, I really like what you're saying about um, not only the history, but the mythical, the uh, childhood fears, like going back to something really primal, I think that is it offers an interesting alternative. Like, again, I'm not judging people like what they like, but I myself find when I read stories where magic is kind of presented as an alternate science, you know, it's very utilitarian, you know, you cast this spell to open a door, you cast this spell to make some light, and there's a whole like legal system built around it, like that has its own novelty. And I enjoyed stories like that uh, quite a bit when I was younger, because it was sort of novel, the idea of, oh, what if magic was formalized? But as I get older, I want mystery. I want to not feel like, okay, yeah, yeah, well, this is just like a, you know, a stand-in almost for stuff that we have. You know, there's like magic cell phone communication, basically, you know what I mean? Send message or whatever. Um, <laughs> and so I like what you're talking about very much. It's, it's definitely what appeals to me more as I get older. Yeah. For me, I, uh, the idea of a magic academy, uh, there's a place for it in fiction. Yes, definitely. I have enjoyed some stories uh, using that. I enjoyed Master of the Five Magics by Lyndon Hardy. Lyndon Hardy, I think. But for sword and sorcery, what I would think of as sword and sorcery, I really want the magic to be mysterious. If it's ever passed on, it is passed on from master to apprentice, or it is passed on within a religious or a shamanical context, never as an academic thing. Mm -hmm. And as a science, I would, I would say rather than have it as a science, I would always have magic as you know, dealing with a supernatural mob boss who would just as soon eat you alive. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so there's always that danger. You, you, you know, you're tempted by the power of it, but you dread it. Yeah. So th there's got to be that. 
like, you know what you remind me of there? Uh, have you read any of Michael Moorcock's Elric stories? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, right there, right? He's always juggling Faustian bargains and all, you know. Oh, yeah, I love the Faustian bargain. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes, um, I discovered Moorcock and Wagner at just about the same time. And, wow, fell in love with their stories. Yeah, I, I started with Elric, uh, and recently I've been reading a lot of Wagner and rather enjoying it. And actually now the, the snake is kind of eating its tail in a way, because now I'm reading um, The Road of Kings, Wagner's Conan pastiche. Mm -hmm. I was very curious to see how he wrote him after his very spirited essays where he would critique, you know, Camp and Carter, uh, sorry, to Camp and Carter for what they did with Conan and mm -hmm. how he felt most pastiches were kind of poor. And I'm like, well, okay, let's see your pastiche, right? But I digress. Pardon me. It's so easy with, this, <laughs> with all these authors to talk about. Coming back to The Lord of the Brass Host, in the same story, there is a line about uh, princes, betrayal, and the way of the world. You know, it's classic pulp cynicism about those in power and how things function in the vein of Howard and many who followed. Do you share that cynicism? How do you feel about that, you know, the way the world works? And does that is that being reflected in your stories? Or is it that maybe you feel differently, and but it felt right for the characters in your tales? Yeah, unfortunately, that's a, going to have a politically charged answer. <laughs> I hope you don't mind. Go for it. Not at okay, all. Well, I feel that my country has never had a good government, that uh, my people don't even know what a good government is like. Mm. So and at the same time, personally, I've also been fascinated and horrified by the intrigues and the uh, you know, naked grabs for power of uh, famous personalities in history. Another thing that I read very early on, uh, yeah, before my teens, was uh, Clavel's Shogun, which went very deeply into the plotting of the Japanese daimyo just before uh, Tokugawa's rise to power, fictionalized, of course. And then uh, at just about the same time, I was reading Herbert's Dune, which also <laughs> had a lot of intrigue. <laughs> yeah, just so, a yeah, bit, I, I yeah. guess that seasoned my writing as well. Uh, that, that cynical view of, uh, you know, uh, plotting always going on. But yeah, unfortunately, I, you know, I, I think there's a lot of real world uh, inspiration for that too. <laughs> Yeah, fair enough. You know, coming back to good old Howard again, sometimes people will portray his stories as being deeply, deeply cynical with like just almost nihilistic in the sense of, oh, well, there's the cycle of civilization and barbarism and sooner or later, like everything will be buried under a wave of barbarians at the gates, you know, including Conan himself, even though he does wind up becoming a king of a big kingdom. Um, but I've had other people make very convincing arguments to me that there is a kind of optimism in the story in the sense that humanity will always rise up again, though. There will always be another era that humanity is always around. There's no real total apocalypse in uh, Howard's tales, at least any of the ones I'm familiar with. With your stories and the cynicism I've mentioned and you've just discussed, mm -hmm. how do you feel? Do you feel it's kind of like, okay, well, the present can be kind of rough, but in the long arc, things will, you know, will work out at least because we'll be around here to keep wrestling with these issues? Or do you feel maybe a little slightly darker about that? Oh, well, I don't know. I, I'd say somewhat balanced. Uh, the human spirit is a wonderful thing. Our, our, you know, our optimism, our hope, our ability to persevere—that's a wonderful thing. But at the same time, uh, human nature is also a scary thing. It's a monster. <laughs> <laughs> You're not wrong," he said, looking out his window at uh, uh, all kinds of things going on in the world right now. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's 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 all a matter of can we restrain the monster. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, my, my stories uh, also are trying to delve into that. Like, okay, look the monster in the mirror, and can you be better than the monster? I like that. Yeah, I think that, you know, to a degree, even though some, many of us 
most of us live far more mundane lives than what happens in Sword Sorcery. I think we can all relate to that. Now, speaking of how one sees the world, if I can sort of uh, zigzag here a little bit, sure. do you find your work as a freelance photographer influences your writing at all? Like maybe your how you describe things or how you see stories in your mind's eye as you write? I think so. Um, I, I've always been a very visual person. So when I describe things, uh, you know, I will often describe like how the sunlight glints off armor, you know, how the landscape looks. Um, I summon images to my mind when I'm writing. And in fact, when I'm really in the zone, I feel like I'm just watching a movie and writing a description of what I'm seeing. Hmm. It also helps that I have Basil Polidori's uh, music blaring in the background, you know, Basil Polidori's uh, score for Conan the Barbarian. <laughs> so, yeah, w- w- when I write a battle scene with that music on, and then I have to rewrite later to, ch- to cut the gore down, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you know, that reminds me. Recently, um, on the uh, Whetstone Magazine Discord, which is kind of a big sword and sorcery hangout I should link you to, um, there was a discussion recently about like gore levels and like what, how much do you want in your stories and like what purpose does it serve and that kind of thing. And like when it crosses the line from like, you know, he got cut and there was blood that shot out. Anyway, we move on to like horror novel levels of detail. Uh, where, mm-hmm. where do you sit on that? Um, like, you know, how much blood and guts to have? Mm, it has its place, but I also like the power of the dramatic understatement. So sometimes I will actually just describe a blow, just beginning, and then the aftermath, you know, mm. not describe the blood and gore anymore, but just, you know, the, the enemy has crumpled to the ground or what. But yeah, there are times when I also will write in uh, descriptions. Uh, well, like I said, I, I read Homer kind of early in life. <laughs> And the Homeric description of damage is basically where the weapon entered, where it came out, and what it did in between. (laughs) (laughs) I think for battle, most of the time, that's kind of all you need, right? It makes me think about how, uh, something I think anybody who writes this kind of stuff uh, wrestles with, which is like how much detail to put into a fight scene. You know, do you describe meticulously every move that each participant makes? Or do you kind of focus on like the mood of the struggle and just like one or two key uh, blows or, or or dodging is out of the way kind of thing and uh in a funny way there's actually a parallel with that uh and, and how love scenes get written you know <laughs> like you're trying to, i mean in a novel you're trying to capture an emotion i think more than like a meticulous breaking down of stunt work sometimes i mean that's my opinion anyway mm-hmm. yeah I, I think you're right um you, you, it's capture the emotion and for me i think capture the decision points when did combat swing against the hero? When did combat swing for the hero? What did he do? Mm-hmm. For me, I think the reader wants to hear about the hero's ingenuity, mm-hmm. especially because I'm pitting the hero against something that's stronger than he is or she is. So how did the hero think their way through? I think that's important because uh, if, if you're like just wailing away, your hero's just wailing away, then you know it gets repetitive after a while. Yeah, it gets repetitive and it's like, what are you telling the reader, right? Because if you're just having a, you know, you want to establish that they're badass, you want to show them that they're strong or quick or, you know, they can pull off a cool move and then that's you saying, yeah, this guy's really capable, uh, you know, this, this man or woman is really capable and the reader can go, okay, cool, got it. But if you just keep hammering that over and over again, you're not telling much, right? Because it's written, you know, they know, like the reader can be like, yeah, you wrote, they're strong because you said they are. <laughs> What's right. more impressive is the ability to follow, as you say, the emotion and the decisions, the cleverness, because that's something a writer, a 
can't fake being clever. You can write dude was strong, <laughs> but you can't write <laughs> he was clever and then provide no examples. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, you, you see a lot of that in Howard as well. Um, mm. You know, uh, Conan's history in the comic books has made too much of his being strong. Mm-hmm. But if you read through the stories, a lot of it is carried, a lot of his fights are carried first by his spirit and second by actually his wits. Mm-hmm. And and also, I mean, just broadly speaking with him, even in Combat and Out, I think about the melancholy of Conan and occasionally the sort of philosophical speeches he gives. You know, the big one I always think of is um, in, uh, oh dear, I'm going to screw up the title, uh, because I always want to call it just Bali or Queen of the Black Coast. I think, yeah, Queen of the Black Coast, um, the Bali story, uh, where he talks about, you know, if life is an illusion, I'm paraphrasing, but if life is an illusion, then so be it. I'm going to live it to the forest. Like, I don't yeah, know the difference. Yeah, so, yeah you know? I remember that, yeah. Yeah, and okay. that was a terrible delivery, but uh, <laughs> listener, if you haven't uh, read that story, I recommend reading it if only for to read the better version of that speech. Um, and so that, that's the stuff that I find tends to get shed by, you know, bad pastiches and imitations. You know, they just focus on the, and then he hit it with an axe, and then the other guy got out of the way, you know, and so on and so <laughs> forth. <laughs> uh, you know what? It occurs to me, I, I really am intrigued by the fact that you not only think a lot about individual combat, but you look a lot at historical battles. So as we've just talked a bit about what makes uh, a man-to-man sort of battle or like a little group battle interesting, what do you feel makes a writing uh, or just reading, you know, um, a like large battle scene captivating? Well, um, being a visual person, so I want to show the sweep of it. I want to show the panorama of it. So I will often include uh, what to my mind are like montages of actions such as that the hero sees. So things that are not happening to him directly, but happening around him. And that helps mm-hmm. build up the menace. And uh, just like with individual combats, I figure, I figure, sorry, I focus on the decision points. Mm-hmm. So I look at the, I will write a, a scene based on what's critical, you know, because otherwise it could get boring. Mm-hmm. And how do you feel about trying to capture sort of emotion when you're looking at that big picture thing? Yeah, so for me, what's very important is uh, you have uh, you give yourself space for reaction shots. Mm-hmm. So that's what I try to do. What does the hero feel when you know, for example, uh, you're charging through the enemy and powering through, uh, riding this herd of uh, war elephants, and suddenly this 16 foot tall yeti comes out of the the rocks and suddenly brains an elephant. It's like, whoa! <laughs> <laughs> that certainly grabbed my attention. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so things like that. It's it's really a focus on the turning points. I think that makes sense. And I gotta say, like I I really like your stories, and I think you really nailed that. Nice. You know, I, I was thinking about the first Pandora story and the river battle, mm-hmm. uh, and, and him sort of constantly having to switch between like managing the greater anxieties of the overall battle, and then oh crap, somebody threw a spear at him. So okay, back to like you know the sort of tighter focus on him, yeah, and and trying to like juggle between those two mindsets, and then also his own personal desires, wanting to take revenge on a captain that betrayed him. Uh, yeah, like it, you do a good job juggling that stuff, man. I oh, think thank it's really you, thank you. I have to admit, though, um, you know, one of the the inspirations for that scene there was, uh, are you familiar with Mountain Blade Warband? It's a computer game, it's a computer role-playing game. Oh, uh, I'm afraid I'm not. That features first-person combat. Anyway, in Mountain Blade Warband, you can participate in large-scale battles in first person, as in your character is right there. But the thing is, you're also commanding the army. So what do you do? Are you going to command the army or are you going to fight for your life? <laughs> cool. 
I really like that. Maybe I don't play enough of computer games, but I uh, I don't think I've seen that kind of blending of uh, formats before. Yeah, yeah, That's check cool. it out. It's uh, it's it's really unique for me. It's actually a ten year old game, so it's actually on sale on in on Steam. Oh, okay, great. <laughs> but for me, it's still one of the coolest. It's a keeper. <laughs> awesome. Huh. So yeah, we've been getting a bit more into craft here, which is always welcome on this podcast. I'm broadly speaking, let's pull out a little bit. When it comes to writing craft and technique, what are you proudest of in your work? Like, do you feel like your dialogue's really tight or do you really like this or that, you know? And what's something you feel you're working to improve? Or maybe, you know, what's a technique you want to try? Okay. Um, hmm. I think my strength is, and I hope I'm not becoming a Howard clone, <laughs> because uh, I think I pretty much internalized the breakneck pacing and description style of Howard. I don't know if I really made it my own. Uh, I, I hope people think I have my own voice. <laughs> well, I, I think you do. You did not read like uh, a Clonan uh, novel at all. <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> not at all. Always something to be afraid of. In fact, that's one of the, the issues that I always look at in uh, rewriting. Mm. But uh, for improvement, I need to improve on my ability to focus. Uh, I get distracted and uh, knocked out of the zone pretty easily. So I have to work on, uh, you know, my mental techniques for getting myself back into the zone. I also would like to experiment with uh, more characters, more diverse characters. Mm -hmm. So like, uh, if you remember the Arya stories in Swords of the Four Winds, that was an experiment okay. on a non-stereotypical swords and sorcery hero. Here's a guy who just wants to get back to his wife and kids. Yeah, now it gave me kind of a, a Clint Eastwood in Unforgiven kind of vibe. <laughs> I okay, thanks, thanks. Because I was thinking of Clint Eastwood. <laughs> oh, really? Excellent. There yeah. you go. <laughs> and another story that really influenced me was uh, Hank Reinhardt's uh, Age of the Warrior. Mm. It, it's about a sort of clonan uh, named Asgalt, a former barbarian, rose to become a duke. He's now in his 70s or 80s gets trapped behind enemy lines, and of course, guess how he decides to end. Okay, cool. So it, I, it, it's, a, it's a great story. Um, it only appeared in, I think, just one anthology, uh, Heroic Fantasy. Okay. I'm not sure who the editor was. You know what? I'll try and look that up because I'm very lucky. In Toronto, we have an excellent speculative fiction archive with like over 80,000 items. It's how I've been lucky enough to read a lot of original editions of a lot of mm, Conan okay. stuff and, and other uh, pulp authors. So it's plausible they might have a copy. Yeah, yeah, I hope you do. Uh, very good stuff. Yeah, unfortunately, that some of the old 80s and 90s stuff never made it beyond the, you know, TRF, toilet readable format. <laughs> <laughs> like no digital editions I can buy. Uh, yeah, that's tricky. I hope, I, I, I'm glad that there are archives out there archiving this kind of stuff because it has value. It has great value. Oh, that's, that's great. That's great for you. Yeah. Coming, coming yeah. back to the focus issue, I'm curious, did you find like playlists help? You mentioned Conan music earlier. Mm -hmm. Yes, definitely. Um, music helps a lot. Although most of the time, the music that I will play is jazz, you know, just to focus and uh, take away the distractions. But when I do write a battle scene, yes, I will fire up uh, music from video games from you know steering movies action movies mm. but i prefer the ones with a classic score classical type score yeah no i honestly the jazz made me think like whatever works you know like i definitely yeah. make playlists for projects as a way of like okay i'm listening to these songs again and whether it's you know something quote-unquote suitable like a big orchestral battle kind of score or if it's i don't know radiohead like as long as it gets me back in this is these are this is the music i identify with the story you know i find mm -hmm. it speeds that up that little mental, you know, getting in the door kind of thing. You mentioned a typewriter earlier. Uh, I don't know if you still have it, but do, how much do you find you write uh, between uh, the computer 
and then just keeping it to paper. Because I know something that really helps me focus is to work on a page because a page doesn't have a browser with like, you know, Twitter and everything on it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know what? There's something about my handwriting. <laughs> my hiragana is much more readable than my Latin script. <laughs> okay. Well, so, part of my ignorance. Uh, is I, I, hiragana... I, hiragana is a Japanese script. I, I've been studying okay. Japanese. And I also find that my uh, handwriting has a lifespan. 24 hours after I wrote it, I can't understand it. (laughs) (laughs) So, so yes, I have to use the computer for everything. Uh, Fair, fair. Well, you got to do what works, right? It's funny. My handwriting is terrible, but I can read it later. Nobody else can. So it's almost like encryption. I'm not really worried. (laughs) So over my shoulder, I can see, like, oh, what's Oliver writing? Okay, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but, but I know. Uh, <laughs> well, well, Scrivener um, helps a lot uh, for me. Uh, mm. What do you use, by the way? Because uh, for, for oh, me, Scrivener uh, actually, is it. Yeah, for, uh, for novels and short stories, I use Scrivener. And when I'm doing screenplays, I use the much maligned, but it's what I've used to, uh, Final Draft. Um, mm. But yeah, I like how Scrivener organizes things. All right, let's switch gears here for a moment. I'm wondering, what is the fantasy writing scene like in the Philippines? Have you found other sword and sorcery fans there? Sword and sorcery fans, definitely. Uh, sword and sorcery writers more into the classic stuff, like I am. Well, I'm kind of one of the older members of the circle. So a lot of the writers there, they are inspired as much by anime and manga as uh, by anything else. So their styles are quite different. And how do you find trying to communicate with them about, like, you should read Howard. <laughs> Have you check out Howard Lamb. Like, the, 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 are people receptive or are they kind of like, I don't know, you know, like that old oh, stuff. I, I leave it to individual preference. Uh, I do let them know what my favorites are. But, uh, yeah, before that, uh, there is quite an audience for uh, classic SNS here in the Philippines. And, in fact, uh, creation-wise, in the 70s and 80s, a lot of sword and sorcery output was coming out in the local comics industry. Uh, the very same artists who would uh, go on to draw for Marvel, DC, Image, uh, mm. were active here. So, you know, uh, if, if you read comics, if you're into comics, uh, you would know the names of Alcala, Redondo, Alex Nino, Rafael Cayanan. So the, these guys, they, they were doing sword and sorcery stuff for the local scene. Uh, I'm not sure very about Cayanan, cool. though. I think he moved straight into uh, Marvel <laughs> because he's, oh, okay, he's, he's pretty enough. young. Yeah. But still, that's pretty awesome. I mean, are there any like online scans or other ways that, that people could read those works now? I believe there are. I just uh, don't have the site at the moment, but uh, I could email it to you when I find it. That would be great. You know what? Uh, I will put that link in the show notes for this episode. So, listener, if you're yeah. curious to check out uh, those comics, look for the link uh, beneath the, the episode. Yeah. Sure. But also, uh, probably more accessible to uh, most of your listeners, uh, a lot of their art uh, appeared in the Warren magazines and also in uh, The Savage Sword of Conan, the, you know, the, the black and white uh, magazine that uh, Marvel used to put out. Yes, that was my origin story with Sword and Sorcery, actually, as a, oh, as a wee okay. kid uh, reading those magazines. Um, yeah, that was my very first Conan, actually. I always see John Basima, uh, you know, his, his iteration in my mind when I think of Conan. Yeah, the, uh, the, the the artist I was speaking of, Ernie Chan, Redondo, etc., the, these were understudies for Bosima. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah, oh, yeah. So I probably yeah, saw their stuff and didn't realize it. Yes, you, you did, you did. Uh, some of the stories uh, in the, about the middle of the run, some of the stories they drew themselves. Very cool. Oh, damn. All right. <laughs> I'm <gonna> go back <laughs> so, that. yeah, you dig up your collection again. <laughs> 
Yeah, thanks, man. You just added a whole new layer to something I felt like I kind of knew inside out. That's really satisfying. Cheers. <laughs> yeah, Savage Lords of Conan is really nice. Uh, so yeah, no wonder we think alike in terms of our yeah, yeah, fantasy leanings. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know what? As we're, we're nearing the end here, I was wondering, okay. do you have any recommendations for you know listeners here of other sword and silk type novels or short stories that you think they should be checking out? Hmm. Not that aware, really, of uh, other stuff uh, set in Asia at this time, but uh, I'll point you to the sword. Uh, how could I, how do how did uh, Charles Saunders call it? The African, yeah, Sword and Soul. Yeah, there. Mm-hmm. Uh, quite a bit of stuff uh, for that is already available. Oh, absolutely. Have you ever heard of Milton Davis? Yes, yes. Yeah, I interviewed him for an earlier uh, episode of the show. Oh, cool. Um, I, I had to look up that podcast. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'll send cool. you the link. No, he's a really chill guy, and he had a lot of interesting stuff to say. Um, so I'm, I'm sure you'd enjoy that. Yeah, so it's, it's true. There's Sword and Soul. Well, it sounds like then uh, there's an opportunity for any listeners. Yes, it's a very open field. Yeah, yeah. There's, I, Lord knows there's so much more history and legend and myth to, to plumb from. And I think, you know... I say this as one of them. Uh, Sword and Sorcery, for whatever variety of reasons, is currently still kind of dominated by white guys in black t-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I would, my, I, speaking as one, I would love to see you know people other than my demographic writing stuff rooted in things other than you know Western medieval kind of you know an antiquity mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Not that people have to write stuff based on their own uh, demographic, but yeah, I think that would be cool for sure. I would love to see some more Sword and Silk, uh, including your own. Uh, could you oh, please thanks. tell us a little bit about the follow-up to Four Winds that you mentioned on your uh, coffee page, which I will also link to in the show notes? Okay. As it says on there, it's tentatively titled Shadow of the Horn King. Is that still the case? Yes. As I was uh, editing, as I was uh, rewriting the stories for Swords of the Four Winds, I realized that there was an element of the background that kept showing up, and that was uh, Jules Carnain, who is uh, my reimagination of uh, Alexander the Great, uh, he was called Dulcarnane in the Middle East as a conqueror who may or may have had may or may not have had demon blood. So yeah. <laughs> um, oh, there's a great great David Jemel series, uh, Prince of Macedon, that also does that. Uh, it reimagines Alexander as uh, possessed by a demon. So I mean, cool. if if you look at it from the Persian and Indian side, Alexander was a war criminal. <laughs> yep. Yep. Right. <laughs> So my idea was, okay, let's see what happens. What are the heroic uh, stories that could pop up from the fallout of such a conquest and the breakdown of the empire that happened afterward, the collapse of his empire afterward. So that's what informs the Arya stories, that informs the backgrounds for some of the Orhan stories. And Mm -hmm. I'm going to continue that. Uh, There will be more brushes with uh, legacies of what this demon prince left behind. Well, I look forward to reading that. And I would encourage listeners, you have a few bucks to spare. I will also link this in the show notes. As I said, please head over to that coffee and chuck a few bucks if you can, because Daryl's raising funds to commission our original art for the cover. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'd love to commission the artist I got for this original Swords of the Four Winds cover again. His name's Raymond Bermudez. He has been drawing for Marvel, so I hope I can still afford him. (laughs) (laughs) A really great guy. Nice guy. Yeah, I know. I I did the cover he did for you. Well, actually... Even more than the cover, it's the frontispiece that I love. Hmm. Is there anything else you might be working on uh, that you'd like to mention to people? And could you also tell them where it's best to find you online? Okay. I believe I mentioned Edgar Rice Burroughs early on and Lee Brackett. So uh, aside from Swords and Sorcery, I kind of have red sand between the ears. You know, my mind is somewhere in Barsoom. 
So, <laughs> good old Sword and Planet, yeah. Oh yes, and so I'm writing Sword and Planet. I'm uh, my first novel. In fact, my first attempt at writing a novel is a Sword and Planet piece, uh, tentatively titled Warrior of the Lost Age. I've been posting uh, excerpts on my blog, swashbucklingplanets.wordpress.com. Uh, so yeah, please check that out. Awesome. Okay, I will uh, link to you there. And do you have like Thank a Twitter you. account or Facebook or any social media that you'd like people to follow you on? Or are you more sensible than <laughs> the rest of us? <laughs> I, I've actually been retiring from Facebook and I never got Twitter. So yeah, you just uh, contact me on my blog and I will reply. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay, cool. I, I, of course, will link to that in the show notes as well. All right, man. Well, this has been a lovely conversation. I'm really glad we overcame our early uh, connection issues there to make this work. <laughs> so yeah, unless there's anything else you want to say, well, we'll sign off. Sound good? Yeah, thanks. Well, thank you very much. Again, thank you very much for this opportunity. Mm. So yeah, and I, I'm going to check out the other podcast, especially the one of Milton Davis. <laughs> yeah, no, I'll link you, man. And again, thank you for so much for joining us. Uh, okay, bye. Okay, bye. Take care. So I'm writing a novel, features original music by Gloria Guns, and is hosted by yours truly, Oliver Brackenbury. If you'd like to submit a question, then please email it too, so I'm writing a novel at gmail.com. Bonus points if you record yourself and send me an mp3 I can cut into the show. Doesn't have to be fancy, using your phone is fine, just keep it clear and concise. You can also holler at the show on Twitter, look for at so underscore writing, that's at so writing. Please consider sharing the show with anybody who might like it, leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, and checking out patreon.com slash so I'm writing a novel. Patrons get to be thanked in the final novel, listen to episodes of the podcast a week early, and even enjoy a bonus podcast called So I Wrote a Novel, where I read and comment on chapters of previous works, starting with my first novel, Junkyard Leopard. Thanks for hanging out with me, and Daryl, and I'll see you soon. <laughs>